I'd invite us now to turn to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, our scripture reading uh, once again for the fifth time this year is uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Uh, these words are the words of the Apostle Paul writing to the Colossians. These are also, at the same time, the very word of God. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we would ask for that measure of your Holy Spirit that is most necessary for us to have, as we would listen to your word, uh, discern the truth, uh, be receptive to your Spirit's promptings within us, to receive it, to feed upon it, uh, to have it transforming our minds and enabling us to properly obey it. And this is what we would pray for. Father, we know that you've given the scripture for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that we can be people of God, fully equipped for every good work. And this is what we pray for. May we be those who are not simply hearers of the word, but doers of the word. But above all, Father, we pray that as we uh, hear these words once again, study these words once again, that they would preach to us of Christ. Our life is found in Christ. So we pray, Father, speak to us of Christ through these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, today we finish this brief series that I've titled A Summation of the Christian Life in Five Parts. But we must not forget that the five principles we have drawn upon or stated or drawn out of these verses, verses 9 through 14, are first of all embedded in a divinely revealed pattern of prayer. It's how the Apostle Paul prays for the church. And that pattern of prayer is how we all ought to pray for each other individually. It's how we ought to pray for the church family as a whole. Now, out of these petitions, I've drawn our attention to these particular fundamental and foundational elements of the Christian life. First, I have said that we have a manual for the Christian life. It's the scriptures by which God gives us the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then secondly, we have a mandate for the Christian life, which is to walk in a manner that's fully pleasing to the Lord. Thirdly, we have a mission for the Christian life, which is to bear fruit in every good work, uh, practical ways to do all the good that we can do while we're seeking to live out and fulfill the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbor as ourself. Fourthly, we have a model for the Christian life, that is to say, one of perseverance and patience and endurance. 
throughout all the toil and troubles of life, uh, living out our lives in dependence upon Christ and dependence upon his strength, which is really the heart of the model of the Christian life, living in dependence upon Christ as jars of clay. And then fifthly, we have a message for the Christian life, which we shall consider today. Now, throughout this series, I've painted a contrast between the patterns of the world with its me-centeredness, which is the current philosophical, social, cultural, and moral conviction that what is of chief importance in life is everybody's life needs to do the best to be its expressive self. Me-centeredness, which is a full theology of expressive individualism, uh, the moral sacredness of the autonomous self that we find in our culture, where we actually have it believed that it's self-evident, it's a self-evident right of liberty, that each one of us has the right to define for our individual selves, quote, our own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Thank you, Justice Kennedy, for making this line of reasoning a part of the canon of the interpretation of constitutional law. But we also looked out, looked at how this plays out in life. How are people to guide their lives, to make important decisions, to determine what is right, what is right for them? And of course, the answer of the culture over and over again is, listen to your own heart. Your heart has the voice to guide you into your truth. Your heart is the most authentic part of you. Therefore, listen to this inner guide. So this idea of the human heart was once again on my own heart as I was working on this fifth principle about the message, the message that we have in terms of the Christian life. I was thinking mostly about how this message applies to the broken hearts of a very broken and lost culture, a lost world. Until by chance, as we Calvinists would never say, rather by a turn of God's providence, I watched the 1960 Disney movie Pollyanna. Then I changed my focus for the application of this fifth point. Now, this was the second time I had watched Pollyanna. The first time was in 1960, the year that it came out. So that was a long time ago. So some of you have never seen it. Some of you perhaps need to be reminded a little bit about it. But Haley Mills, the actress, stars as a 12-year-old child of missionary parents who die while serving in the West Indies, leaving Pollyanna an orphan. And so the movie opens as she arrives in the small town of Harrington, uh, a train rides distance from Baltimore, to live with her, her aunt, her mother's very strict and very proper sister who's named Polly, and it's this aunt who's adopted her. Now, on what is apparently a Monday morning, Pollyanna arrives with her aunt, arrives while her aunt Polly is receiving the Reverend Ford as a visitor in her sitting room. He has come by to review his ideas for his upcoming sermon with this wealthy and highly influential Polly Harrington. After all, the town is named after her family. 
when she responds to his ideas in this manner. So Aunt Polly says this. Well, let me tell you what my father said to Reverend Moffat. That was Reverend Ford's predecessor. He said, you only have the congregation for one short hour a week, and there are six long days of mischief for them before you get them again. Reverend Ford responds, Aha! I see your point. Strike hard on Sunday the excessiveness of God's the excessiveness of God's wrath, and hope they carry it with them a few days into the week. Aunt Polly, with excitement in her voice, exactly what I mean. Oh yes, yes. And on the following Sunday, we see exactly the message Reverend Ford delivers. It is a thundering presentation of the wrath of God against the mischief of men and how death comes unexpectedly. Now, the effect upon the congregation is obvious. Body language betrays inward cringing and cowering. Bowed heads show feelings of accusation and condemnation. Faces show defeat and despondency. Eyes betray shame and guilt. All heads are lowered as folks leave the church. People move hurriedly away from this hour of being under the condemning presence of the judgment of God. Now, as I'm watching this scene, I wondered, where have I heard this kind of preaching? Where have I heard such messages that would evoke such shame and guilt and deep feelings of condemnation and, and, and which would cause me to want to move further away from God? And this is what came to mind. First John chapter 3, verse 20. This particular phrase. For whenever our hearts condemn us and that gave me the answer the preacher that is so much like Reverend Ford was and is my own heart I realize that the Apostle John describes the least favorite of preachers but the one that we often as believers listen to the most the Reverend Ford-like heart inside of us that condemns. This is the voice that so many Christians hear in their minds, coming from their hearts, speaking words of condemnation and accusation, because our lives seem to be so full of sin and shame. And yet, Scripture tells us that we're not to trust our own hearts and what our hearts might say. Our hearts, in fact, need constant corruption because according to Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And as I watched Reverend Ford and Aunt Polly excitedly create the message that would accuse and condemn, I realized that the message that Paul gives us here about the gospel in verses 12, 13, and 14 
is really what we as Christians need to be preaching to ourselves. The message, not about what God is going to do to us by virtue of his wrath, but the message about what God has done for us out of his sheer goodness, love, and grace. And it is a message we need to preach to ourselves all of the time. It's about the sheer grace of God. It is that which is the true source of joy and gratitude in the Christian life. It is the one and only one motivating message for the Christian. It is the message that gives us life and hope in a very broken world. It is what Paul has succinctly stated in these final verses of his prayer, verses 12 to 14, where he speaks of giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the message for the Christian life. This message is what we must preach to our own hearts. This message is what gives us life and hope in a very broken world. Now, as we think about verses 12, 13, and 14, we have Paul's description of gospel salvation. It's stated in three basic points, each one of which contains in itself such a tremendous measure of the sheer grace of God. And we can map it out this way in these particular words. That by the sheer grace of God, we possess now a future inheritance and glory. And by the sheer grace of God, we possess now an actual place in Christ's kingdom. And by the sheer grace of God, we possess now and forevermore the full benefits of Christ's saving work. And this is the message that we must be preaching to our own hearts. Now, the first part of this message is essentially this, that by the sheer grace of God, we possess now an inheritance in glory. Paul says, the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, that particular petition and phrase tells us several things. First, the word saint is Paul's favorite word for the whole number of those who are saved. And those who are saved have this inheritance in the life to come. Paul is saying that this is coming to us as our definite and guaranteed future. Now, think about the idea, the concept of inheritance. Lots of differences between lots of different cultures, some differences between the Old Testament, New Testament, some differences in terms of the, the ancient world between Roman inheritance, Greek inheritance, Jewish inheritance, and so forth. But something that is always central to the idea of inheritance is that of passing on property from one generation to the next, generally passing on property from those who die uh, to those who are specified to receive that property in the dying person's 
last will and testament. And in the New Testament, what we are to inherit in the life to come is the fullness of the kingdom of Christ, the one who has died for us, with the lofty idea that we are, in fact, fellow heirs with Christ. For Paul writes in Romans 8, 17, that if we're children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So think about your life. No matter the toil or trouble, no matter the tribulations that we are going through, that we are experiencing, we have this guaranteed future inheritance. And it's something to fix our hearts on, something to preach to ourselves. But what sweetens this inheritance, it's all of the Father's doing. The Father has qualified us. We have not done anything at all to merit this inheritance. We've not done anything to make ourselves worthy. It is fully of God's grace. The written document that we might call the Lamb's Book of Life, the Father wrote our names in it, not we ourselves. And that's something to remind us. The Father, long ago, wrote us into his eternal inheritance because he wanted to. He chose to do this. He chose to love us and to make us heirs with his son. And as the father does not change, so this inheritance will never be taken away from you. This is the message to preach to your own heart. That by God's sheer grace, you possess now an inheritance in the life to come. You possess now an inheritance that will never be taken away from you. Now the second part of the message that we should preach to ourselves is that we now possess a place in Christ's kingdom. Because in verse 13, we read this, that he, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. The focus, again, it's on what God the Father has done. Not anything we have done to cause this, or to earn this, or to deserve this. It is all of the Father's sheer grace. So, look at what God has done to give us a present possession of a place in the kingdom of Christ. Paul describes it as a deliverance and a transference. The deliverance means that we were in some place where it was no good for us to be. And Paul calls it the domain of darkness, a place of spiritual darkness. It is a place that is ruled over by the cosmic powers that are enemies of God and enemies of believers. 
Paul tells us that in Ephesians 6.12, where he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Even though we are still involved in spiritual warfare against these cosmic evil powers, we are no longer living truly within their domain. Because we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. We are no longer following the course of this world. We are no longer following the prince of the power of the air. We no longer have that evil spirit at work in our passions and desires and mind. Because we are no longer children of wrath. We are no longer in that place of spiritual darkness. Rather, the Father has given us a transfer not just a passport, not just a temporary visa, but a permanent transfer into his beloved son's kingdom. This means that we have passed from spiritual death to spiritual life. We are alive in union with Christ. We have been raised up with Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are fellow citizens of the kingdom with all of the saints. We are members of the household of God with the Father himself at work within us by his Holy Spirit to do those good works which he has prepared in advance for us to do even while the Holy Spirit is building us all together to be that holy temple and dwelling place for God. And this isn't just a passport where we might visit and vacation in the kingdom of Christ for a short time, but then have to leave. It isn't a temporary visa. It isn't a green card that allows us to be here, even to study and work here, but we actually don't belong here. But we'll have to leave at some stamped date upon official paperwork. No, we have been permanently transferred to the kingdom of Christ. But know what Paul says about Christ that adds a layer of sweetness to this transference. Paul tells us that the kingdom is that of the Father's beloved Son. The Son who is the blessed object of the Father's greatest love. Jesus who is the supremely beloved one. We've been transferred to the place that belongs to the one that the Father loves above all else. What the Father has given to his beloved Son, that place, that realm, that kingdom, is where the Father has placed us to be with his Son. What a message that is to defeat our accusing hearts. Think about this deliverance. Think about this transference as something you can preach to your own heart. You can declare to your heart that you no longer live in the domain of darkness, but rather right now you live in the kingdom of Christ. And right now Christ is your king, who is the Father's beloved son. And you can sing. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. 
with thanks to Mr. Edwin Mole for giving us these words to sing to our own hearts that when we face the high and stormy gale of accusations and condemnations coming into our own minds, generated by our own hearts, that here is that which we can preach to ourselves instead, that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness. We have been transferred by the Father into the kingdom of his beloved Son. This is our place. This is where we belong right now. Our King is Christ. Our heart is his place to rule and to reign. The third part of the message that we ought to preach to our hearts is this, that by the sheer grace of God, both now and forevermore, we possess in Christ the full benefit of his saving work. Now, Paul uses two terms to sum up these full benefits, redemption and forgiveness. And he places them one right after the other in the tightest connection syntactically because they are so tightly connected theologically. If you have the first, you necessarily have the second. It is like picturing them in terms of cause and effect. Redemption is the cause. When Christ died in our place on the cross, his death was the ransom price that actually paid the penalty for our sins. His death actually canceled the debt of all of our sins. His death actually removed the claim of a law against us. The ransom of Christ actually set us free. The work of Christ actually causes all of these things with regard to our sin. And the, then the effect is the forgiveness of our sins. The effect of this redemption is the pardon of all of our offenses, all of our trespasses, all of our iniquities, all of our wrongdoing. It is the effect of of the removal of all condemnation. It is the effect of being declared perfectly righteous in the sight of God. It brings the effect of being justified before the judgment seat of God. It causes the effect of being fully reconciled to God. And of course, it is the Father, God the Father, who has ordained and established this cause and effect relationship. He made this abundantly clear in Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. He had Isaiah the prophet say these words, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Redemption. The cause. Forgiveness of sin. The effect. And here is what it looks like to preach to our own hearts and souls. 
Thy work's not mine, O Christ. Speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done. They bid my fear depart. Why? Thy pains, not mine, O Christ, upon the shameful tree, have paid the law's full price and purchased peace for me. Thy cross, not mine, O Christ, has borne the awful load of sins that none in heaven or earth could bear but God. Thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness avails save that which is of thee. And this is why, by the sheer grace of God, we possess now and forevermore the full benefit of the saving work of Christ. And thank you, Horatius Bonar, for this hymn that preaches the gospel to our hearts. And thank you, Charles Wesley, for these words which do the same. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. This is the message we need to preach to ourselves all of the time. The sheer grace of God that governs every aspect of our salvation. It's the source of joy and gratitude in our lives as Christians. It's, it's the motivating message that empowers us in our Christian life. It's the message and the only message that can give us life and hope in a very broken world. And it's a proper conclusion for the summation of the Christian life. These five foundational ideas. We have the Bible to give us the knowledge of God's will. We have the rule of life, which is to always live to please Jesus. We have our marching orders, which is to do all the loving good we can possibly do in this world. We have dependency upon Christ and his strength as the means of facing all of the toils and troubles of this earthly journey. And we have good news to counter the voice of Reverend Ford clamoring in our hearts. We can preach the true gospel of the Father's sheer grace. And we can hear the voice of Jesus saying to us, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly and hard, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Sovereign Father, work in us to hear the gospel overriding our own self-accusing and condemning hearts. Father, we pray, 
give us strength in Christ to hear his voice calling us to fellowship with him. Give us your spirit to know that you love us above all things, even as you loved your son. Remind us, Father, we have an inheritance that you have qualified us for. You have delivered us out of the darkness of a lost and broken life. You have placed us permanently in the realm of your son's kingdom, the son you love. And Father, you have redeemed us and fully forgiven all of our sin. All of this we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.